A couple weeks ago I preached on Father's Day and, and I, I preached on the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, which of course begins, Our Father, it seemed to fit and uh, worked out well. And this week we'll pick up where we left off now at Matthew 6, verse 10. And once again, it's a timely passage, I believe. We see that this is 4th of July weekend. It's a time where across our country there are celebrations, parades, and carnivals, and fireworks, and picnics, and and all sorts of celebratory exercises. And it's good for us to celebrate America. It is good for us to give thanks for the blessings consonant with being an American. It is good for us to remember these things. So often we take them for granted and we ought not to take them for granted. We ought to celebrate these blessings as coming from the hand of Almighty God. First and foremost among these, I guess, might be the fact that we have the freedom to gather together as we have today, to assemble together, to worship God rightly. What a blessing it is. That is part of the reason for which the Revolutionary War was originally fought, part of the reason why we sought to be our own nation. It was to have such liberties. And so it is that we have that. We ought to give thanks for that. We ought to give thanks for our heritage. In many ways, it is a Christian heritage. We see that there were many God-fearing men among our founding fathers and that the systems of laws and of government that they established are rightly understood as being formed and based largely on the words of Holy Scripture and the guidance that it gives. We are right to celebrate America. Furthermore, we have a responsibility, as people do in any nation, to support their nation. God calls us uh, to support our nation through prayer. In 1 Timothy 2 we read, uh, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Furthermore, we support our country through our taxes. Uh, Jesus famously said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And he was willing to pay the taxes that were owed. And we ought to seek the welfare of the place where we live. I'm reminded of how God told the people of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah that even when they were in bondage, in captivity, in Babylon, oppressed by a nation and by a people who would have them enslaved, they were told Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. We too need to pray for the welfare of the place where we live. It needs to be a concern of our heart. It needs to be something that we are constantly doing. Now this is not to be seen as an end in itself, though she has received countless blessings, we need to remember that America has been the fortunate recipient of God's grace. We need to never make America out to be the ultimate, to have it be 
the people of God, if you will. Just as two weeks ago, I talked about how we honor fathers and we celebrate Father's Day. And in so doing, we see a picture in them of a greater father, of a greater reality. We see that our earthly fathers remind us and point us to our heavenly father. And so it is, I think, that as we celebrate the kingdom of America, if you will, that one of the very valuable purposes in doing that is that it points us to a higher kingdom. It points us to a greater kingdom, and that is the kingdom of heaven. And so as we celebrate America, let us, let us remind ourselves of our ultimate citizenship. For if we look at our passports, we might see that we are citizens of the United States of America. But if we look at our Bibles, we will see in Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven. And we await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the kingdom with which we are most concerned is not the kingdom of America, but the kingdom of heaven. So it must be that our prayer is that petition which Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Lord, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have given it to us. We pray that you would apply it to our hearts. Speak through me now as I preach from it. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The Lord's Prayer is something that we we pray often, and that is a good thing. It is a good thing that we pray it often. But there are some dangers involved in that, aren't there? It can become rote. It can become mechanic. And so it's good for us from time to time to pause, to stop, to think about those things which we pray in the Lord's Prayer. And that is part of the reason why I I am endeavoring to go through it in this sermon series so that we can take some time and think about those things that we so commonly say and perhaps not so commonly think about. And today we've come across this passage, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What exactly do we mean when we say that? Well, if we were to answer that, then then we need to understand a few different things. There's some key questions we have to ask ourselves. First of all, what, what is meant by God's kingdom? And furthermore, what is meant by its coming? And then beyond that, when we speak of the will of God, what is, what is our understanding of that? Because that is a very nuanced phrase that can mean many things. Of course, we, we first need to know who is this God to whom we're speaking. And, and it is, of course, the God that is our Father who is in heaven. We remember from that that as our Father, he is close, he is imminent, he is the one who hears us. He is God with us, Emmanuel, who in the person of Jesus Christ made himself known to us and through the work on the cross made himself accessible to us. But at the same time, he is still our Father in heaven. He is transcendent. He is is beyond our understanding except to the degree that he has revealed himself to us. He is greater than us. He is beyond us. And he deserves our worship and our praise. 
And what is his kingdom? Well, one person put it this way. He said the kingdom is not to be equated with any human state, race, or societal group, but rather is made up of a humbled people who obey the will of God, who rules over them as king. Another put it simply, the kingdom of God is his royal rule. I like that. It's a simple statement, but couldn't we say if that's the case, well, doesn't God rule over all things? Is he not sovereign? And so is not everything the kingdom of God? Well, certainly God is sovereign. There is no debating that. We cannot back off that point. We must stand firmly upon it. He is sovereign, but there is another sense in which his his sovereignty has not been made quite as manifest in all of creation. There are some ways in which creation still rebels against his sovereignty. Some ways in which he has not yet brought his purposes to their appointed end. This can be kind of confusing because there is a sense in which the kingdom has already come. We pray thy kingdom come, but then we remember that Jesus said in Matthew 4, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And then he later would send out his 12 disciples, telling them, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there is a sense in which the kingdom is at hand. It is here. And at the same time, he said that the kingdom was something still to be entered into, still to be inherited, still to be realized on the last day. In John 18, we remember Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. There seems to be a tension here. There seems to be a tension, and it's, it's what theologians so creatively call the already but not yet status of the kingdom. It is already here in one sense, but not yet in another. While the kingdom has been inaugurated with the first coming of Christ, it has not yet been consummated as it will with his return. The best illustration I've heard that kind of helps me to understand this idea is that of D-Day. Remember that in World War II when the Allied forces, some 160,000 strong, stormed the beaches on D-Day and eventually took control there that the, the tide had turned in World War II. After the Allies took control there after D-Day, the the war was effectively over. There was no way that they could lose the war at that point. But it was still almost another full year until the surrender was actually issued. And it's similar to that. Perhaps we've all heard stories of other wars where where people have actually even, uh, nations have surrendered but some of their people have not heard yet about the surrender. And so they go on fighting. And that perhaps is what we see here. Jesus has defeated Satan. He has defeated death. He has defeated sin. That all occurred on the cross. And that victory is assured. That victory is complete. It is done. There is nothing left that we need to do to add to it. It is an absolute 
done deal, if you will. But there is a sense in which we have not seen the fullness of that victory. But we will see it. It will be here on a day. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, and I love his words. He says, We live between the inauguration of the kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom. Therefore, we pray that the kingdom that has already been established will express its presence more and more throughout the earth until the day comes when, as Revelation 11.15 says and the Hallelujah Chorus echoes, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Amen. What a beautiful day that will be. His reign will be made manifest throughout all the earth. And we long for that. That is what it means for his kingdom to come. Now there is an important distinction we need to make. A distinction that is helpful with both the thy kingdom come and thy will be done. And that is that there is there's an overlap between these terms. And, and this distinction is between the decreed will of God and the declared will of God. We could use those phrases. The decreed will of God, what, is, what do I mean by that? Well, the, it's helpful to turn to the Westminster Shorter Catechism for this one. Question number seven of the Catechism asks, what are the decrees of God? And the answer is, I, I love this answer. This is one of my favorite answers in all the Catechism. It says, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass you see the idea is that if you want to know what god has decreed simply look around and whatever happens is what god has decreed he has predestined us ephesians 1:11 says according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. His will, in this sense, his decreed will, is those things which come to happen, those things which come to pass. If God is sovereign over all things, then he must be completely sovereign over whatever comes to pass. Now there's a whole other set of questions and discussions that we could have that we don't have time for today. Perhaps you're sitting there asking, well, how can it be that God exists and is sovereign but even so we have evil and what is the interplay between man's responsibility and evil and and we don't have time for that whole discussion today apart from taking a quick moment to point out that God works even through the greatest of sins and they are under his sovereignty he is not surprised by them he does not need to react to them he's not just really smart and able to figure his way out of any jam kind of like a MacGyver He is sovereignly in control. And we know this because we look at the greatest sin that ever occurred. The greatest evil, the greatest injustice was when a perfectly righteous man hung on a cross on Mount Calvary and he absorbed the punishment that we deserved. And those who spat upon this righteous man, those who whipped this righteous man, those who crucified this righteous man, committed as grievous a sin as ever has been committed. 
But yet, even though this is true, we read in Scripture that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This was not something that occurred outside of his providence, outside of his sovereignty. He worked in and through that. We don't always understand it, nor should we expect to. In Isaiah 55, we read, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. If God is worthy of our worship, then there must be those things about him which we do not understand. There must be a mystery there. We should not flee from this mystery. We should not be scared of this mystery. We should embrace this mystery. We should embrace his word. Now, in addition to God's decreed will, which we've been talking about, there is what we could call his declared will, perhaps his moral will. Now, this is another facet of his will and under, uh, to be understood a little bit differently. Uh, this would be, um, as Hebrews 13 put, puts it, whatever is pleasing in his sight, that which, as we said in Romans 12 earlier, is good and acceptable and perfect, that moral will which he has given us in his moral law, those things that we are told to do, that he has declared that we ought to do, that is his will, his moral law. So in at least one sense, the idea that Christ would be king means we want his rule to be more evident every day. In the words of John Stott, we want life on earth to more closely approximate life in heaven. Now this needs to be done, of course, not just by some or not just by most, but by all. We want it to be true of all that they would live in accordance with God's plan. If this is our desire, if this is our prayer, then that has certain implications, doesn't it? There is indeed an evangelistic aspect to this prayer, for if we want others to live in accordance with God's plans, then there is a responsibility on us to tell them about God's ways. If we really want God's will done on earth as it is in heaven, then we will alert others to the one who is the way and the truth and the life. We will share that with them. If you want somebody to go to some restaurant where you had a really good meal, you wouldn't just sit there and say, I hope they do, I hope they do. You'd tell them about it, wouldn't you? If you read a really good book and you enjoyed it and you, you wanted somebody to share in that joy, you wouldn't just hope that they do it and you, you might you know, take the book and kind of set it on their nightstand and hope that they read it. No, you would tell them about it. You would say, I've read this book. It is a wonderful book. You ought to read it too. And if we have drunk from that fountain, which issues forth a water that paradoxically both quenches our thirst and leaves us thirsty for more, and we have been filled with the joy, would we not also need to tell others about this fountain? If we want them to drink from it too, there is an obligation on us to tell them about it. Now, many of us have grown up in a culture where we say, well, religion is a private matter. 
And so I don't talk about it with other people because it's a private matter. But when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it has ceased to be a private matter. We are asking God to do something in the lives of others at that point. And if we are asking him to do things in the lives of others, then we need to be willing to be agents of that change, used by God for his purposes in the lives of others. There are other implications. Far too often our application of God's moral law is to look at that and to say, ah, yes, I know somebody else who has a real big problem with that. Such and such really struggles in that area. So and so is really a sinner over there in that way. That needs to not be our response to God's will, to his moral law. What we need to do with his law is turn its sear, the searing glare of its spotlight on ourselves and on our lives and see where we fall short, where we lack obedience to God's law. And we need to ask God to reveal that sin to us. This is not a fun process. It is not something we enjoy, but it is something we need. We need his spirit to convict us of our sin. We need to have others who we give permission to confront us in our sin. Others who feel safe, who know that they can come before you and they can tell you where you are falling, where you are not standing in holiness. Do you have people in your life who have that freedom, who have that ability, who can come to you and tell you when you are not doing the things that you ought to be doing? And are you that person in the lives of others? Do you have the types of relationships, the type of humble, loving relationships that allow that type of interaction? Endeavor to find that in others and with others. That is what the body of Christ is about. We do not go about this as lone rangers, but we go about it in relationship with one another as various members of one body looking out for our corporate welfare. We also need to be searching out God's will in his word. He gives it to us there. Notice how when Jesus was tempted by Satan, how he responded with words of scripture. Now it's not enough to just memorize certain verses of scripture because when Jesus responded with scripture, what did Satan do? Satan responds with scripture too. You see, Satan knows the word of God better than you do. And he will use it against you by misinterpreting it, by misimplying it. So we need to know it, and we need to know it in context, and we need to immerse ourselves in it. We need to study it. We need to learn it with each other. And of course, we need to not only know it, we need to not just know the will of God, we need to do the will of God. It is not enough to merely know that if I want to go to Davison, I know I need to go east from here. If after church, though, I get in my car and I drive west, that knowledge did me no good. I need to do as well as know. Knowledge is good, but it is not ultimate. The Shema was the, the ancient creedal statement of first century Jews. It was their most basic creedal statement. It's found in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. And it reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was something that was recited multiple times every day. It was, it was kind of their most basic statement of faith. Against that backdrop, James says, 
in chapter 2, verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. But then he goes on to say, even the demons believe and they shudder. It's not just enough to know facts. We need to embrace those facts with our hearts and apply them to our lives and live them out in our daily walk. And finally, we need to bow to God's sovereign purposes. That is, of course, what Jesus Christ did. He set aside his godly prerogatives, took on human flesh, and he lived a life of humility when he deserved all honor and glory. This extended even to the Garden of Gethsemane, where we see the one who had come down from heaven not to do his own will, but to do the will of his Father, praying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We need to be like Christ in that we need to, even more than we want what we want for ourselves, we need to want what God wants for us. You say, great, Pete. Well, well, if only I knew the will of God for my life. Today's your lucky day. I have a Bible verse. I have a Bible verse. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And it goes on from there, but, but that is the will of God. It is your sanctification. It is your growth in holiness. Not just you individually, but you corporately. Us corporately. As a body that we might grow in holiness that we might grow in Christ-likeness, that we might be more like him, our king. And where is the kingship of Christ most evident to us? Where is it most plain? Where is it most obvious? Let me ask it another way. When Jesus came before Pilate, what was the accusation against him? What was, as he hung on the cross, the sign above his head with the written charge, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It is on the cross that we most clearly see the kingship of Christ as he hung there fighting our battles, paying our debts, winning our victories, securing our good. And if we are to be like Christ, if we are to grow in Christ-likeness, then we need to be willing to lay down our lives as well. His word says, does it not? Greater love hath no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. But it is not just our friends for whom we need to be willing to lay down our lives. His word tells us it is also our neighbors. But it's not just our neighbors. It is even our enemies that we are called to love. Are you willing to love your enemies? That is what Christ Jesus did. He loved his enemies because that's what you and I were. We were enemies of God. Romans 5 tells us while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And God has shown his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did this not because we were beautiful, but he did it so that he might make us beautiful. Like a beautiful bride. I'm always amazed at weddings how beautiful the brides are. On that day, their dress is absolutely perfect and radiant. Their makeup and hair is as perfect as it's ever been. And there is just a beauty in that bride on that day. It's interesting when Paul speaks to us in Ephesians 5, he speaks to husbands and tells them to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And he goes on to say, this is how Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The church of Christ is the bride of Christ, being made perfect even now. There will be a day when that work will be done, when the church will be completely perfect, when the kingdom will be made perfect. And oh, we long for that day. We read about it in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. May we indeed long for that day. May we be those who wholeheartedly pray. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Let us pray. We do pray that, Lord Jesus. We pray even now, come, Lord Jesus. Make your kingdom evident to us and evident through us. And make your kingdom complete even now. We long for your return. May you be glorified. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.